0: Be so in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. we kind of move into the sermon today, a couple things to give the Lord thanks for. Uh, How about the rain? Thank you, God, for the rain, for the cool weather, for the parched land that is just um, received uh, by God's common grace. Uh, Rain. I mean, are you as excited as I am over rain? and? cold weather so I've been praying for that and we need to continue to pray for the Lord to bless our parched state in the west uh, with rain and then another thing uh, I'll share with you uh, some of you know I'm I uh, love to be in the outdoors and uh, in God's creation mostly on my mountain bike is is uh, where I do that and I tend to give you wildlife updates of what I see and so Friday Right before uh, the sun went down, I'm out in the canyon riding on my mountain bike or just on the forest hill side of the uh, the river and got to see uh, a bear again. I've seen uh, more bears in the last few months. Uh, this guy was very friendly and just kind of moved off the trail for me, but stayed in sight. So I just kind of stood over my bike and and uh, and watched him as he just kind of moseyed, uh, moseyed on. So I'm just I'm thankful. God is... Uh, God is good. He's blessed us with rain. He's blessed me with uh, wildlife. I'm like a kid in a candy store when I'm out out uh, out in the back country, and and uh, really thankful uh, to God. Well, last week in our small group, the opening discussion question was, "What do you like best about your parents or your grandparents' marriage?" And my 15 year old son. Chose to talk about his grandparents' uh, marriage. And he shared uh, what he liked best about his grandparents' marriage was watching his grandpa just a few years ago, as his grandpa's in his 70s, late 70s at this time, watching his grandpa learn to cook, learn to clean house, learn to be a nurse. To his wife as Michael's grandmother um, was diagnosed with cancer initially she was fairly healthy and so she would sit at the kitchen table and she taught and instructed her husband who was about as familiar with the kitchen as I am did a lot of work outside lots of chores but hadn't been in the kitchen much and and she taught him how to cook And so for the grandkids to see grandpa with this apron on in the kitchen making meals as grandma had been doing for so many years uh, was a striking thing. And as her health deteriorated and the cancer spread and we saw him uh, cleaning and, and nursing and caring for her, we saw a picture of the gospel of Jesus. We saw a picture of how uh, a marriage is intended uh, to function, that God designed us to serve one another and to love one another. And one of the reasons, one of the purposes of Christian marriage is to actually display the gospel. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Holy. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You see, there is this tremendous love between Christ and his bride, the church. The church worldwide, including this congregation, including this church. There's this tremendous love. And Jesus served his bride, the church, by dying on a cross, suffering, redeeming us. And marriage, one of the main purposes of marriage is to display that and to serve. And, and we watched my uh, father-in-law and my 15-year-old watched his grandpa serve his wife, not out of obligation, not with burden, but with joy. Just as Jesus, Hebrews describes, Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured suffering. It was sacrificial, but he did it to redeem us. And this is one of the main purposes of marriage to display the love between christ and his bride the church the bible tells us that the church the bride of christ is indestructible that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church walmart uh, may go away someday amen i don't know Um, walmart may go away apple computer Big companies, they, they may go away. Uh, the, the Roman Empire uh, is gone. It, 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 it went away. Uh, dare I say it, the United States of America may one day uh, be gone. But the church of Jesus Christ will never be destroyed. And God loves his church. And marriage is designed by God to display this indestructible love. It's designed to be an until death do us part kind of thing. I brought my, uh, my black book uh, with me today that I use for wedding ceremonies and so on and uh, other ceremonies. And you know, there's nothing quite like um, the wedding ceremony, what we, what we do there. Uh, the, the commitment until death do us part. There's nothing quite like that any other relationship that we have. When a pastor is called to a church, uh, he doesn't uh, stand up front and take vows. Until death, do us part, I will serve you. We, we, we don't do that, do we? Sometimes that happens. Um, but we, we don't make vows like that to our friends, to our church, or to anything. Why do we make uh, vows like this? I was going to read to you uh, from my book, Part of One, to remind you, you said something like this. Do you solemnly agree before God and these witnesses to take your spouse, so-and-so, to be your lawful wedded wife or husband, to love and respect, to honor and to cherish in health and in sickness and prosperity and adversity, and leaving all others to keep yourself only to him or her, so long as you both shall live? We've said vows uh, like this. And the reason that we say these vows, we may not be aware of it, but the reason that we say it is because God has designed marriage to be a display of the gospel and a display of, God's, of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So the design is for this to be an until death kind of love. But in reality, uh, many Christian marriages uh, end uh, prior to death. Some of the marriages, uh, some of you in this room, represent marriages that have ended prior to death, that have ended in divorce. And so in the sermon today, and we have kind of a long introduction. We're going to get to the word here in just a moment. In the sermon today, I have two parts in my mind and two things uh, that, uh, that I want to do. Do we have any slides? There we are. Uh, there, there's two things I want to do. I want to look forward and I want to look back. We're in 1 Corinthians 7, which we're going to look at in just a minute, Paul is giving instructions on what to do now and to, and to move forward, but I also want to look back, and I want to look back at the end of this message, especially for those who have been divorced, who have been remarried, because I have experienced that those who have that in their past sometimes feel uh, elbowed out, as it were, in the church. They feel like second class citizens in the kingdom of God and in the church. And this should not be. And so I'm going to hit that in the, in the second part of this sermon. So be patient with me today, those of you for whom this is a, uh, an issue that is, is difficult and is very close to your heart and close to your history. So uh, so that's what I want to do. But uh, let, let's pray again. I've had a long introduction here. Let's pray again, and then we'll get into First uh, Corinthians 7. Father in heaven, uh, we're thankful for the word of God. I pray today that you would help me to preach it clearly. Lord, I pray for every marriage in this room uh, that... that that is current right now and even for those who are single now in this room that will enter into marriages in the future, I pray for those marriages as well. I pray that the teaching from 1 Corinthians 7 would hit us all today. And God, that we would love you and that we would display the gospel through our marriages, even though it is difficult, Lord. It's, there are bumps, there are challenges And we know that, and so we ask for your grace, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're not there, please uh, turn there. We're going to begin looking at uh, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians, I'm sorry, did I say Ephesians? 1 Corinthians 7 and verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, in case you weren't here last week, we we finished up last week in verse 7, and let me just read it, where Paul says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And so in verse 7, Paul has just finished describing that singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. There is none superior than the other. In the early centuries of of the church's history, there was this elevation of singleness, a radical elevation of singleness. I mentioned this last week. Some men, there was such an elevation of singleness that many men, when they were called to the ministry, would then put their wives aside to live a more holy life of singleness. This is wrong, but this happened for centuries in the church. Now, today it's kind of flipped and singleness is on the bottom and marriage is on the top. Verse 7, remember, Paul is saying that these are both gifts from God, whether you are single or whether you are married. So now he's addressing these different categories of folks. Back to verse 8 now. And the first category are those who are unmarried like him, or, and, and then the other category are those who are widows. And he is repeating what he has already said in chapter 7, that it's good for them to stay unmarried. And again, I hit this last week, but for those of you that weren't here, I think what he's getting at is the, the, the reality of the freedom to advance God's kingdom as a single person as compared to the responsibilities you have as a married man or a married woman with children. Paul traveled all over uh, to plant the gospel, to, to preach the gospel, and to plant churches he was free to just go and and as a married person that's difficult. So I think what we're hearing here again in this verse is his personal preference. It's good for you to stay as you are, but God has given us these desires and if you have those desires, then it is okay uh for you to get married. So so I I want to uh I want to say um uh, about verse 8. It's interesting Another reason, I think, that he mentions widows here. Notice in verse 8, he doesn't mention widowers, it's feminine. He mentions the unmarried, including himself in that category, and then he mentions widows. There were lots of widows in Corinth and in the Roman Empire in the first century, but there were also lots of widowers. So, Why does he mention uh, widows here? And again, I think the primary reason is simply that they can be free to expand God's kingdom But I wanted to give you a picture of what, a background here of what life was like for being a woman in the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, This historian uh, writes this, we're in verses 8 and 9 here to the unmarried and widows. Here's what this uh, historian writes. Uh, Rossell points out how relatively seldom the same couple would enjoy a mutually lifelong relationship not least because childbearing was initially frequent with one in five pregnancies fatal. Did you get that, ladies? One in five pregnancies, mom dies in the first century in the Roman Empire. Life expectancy in the Roman Empire was on average between 20 and 30 years. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, just to think about that. I mean, we, we, uh, we're going to live, what, 70, 80, 90? Dick Carter, how old are you? Are you awake back there? How old are you, sir? 90. So uh, he's 90 years old. Praise God that you're 90 years old. But as they're receiving this from Paul, women expected to live 20 or 30 years. You were married. Basically, at reproductive age, you were married and children came right away arranged marriage and so i think perhaps a secondary reason that paul has included widows and not widowers here is for compassion for women don't 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 go this way again this is a this is a a a freeing thing he's saying you don't have to the pressure would have been to marry again okay little background there it's just Crazy to me, as I came across this I, is this you all knew this right you, you all knew that women only lived to be twenty or thirty, and when you got pregnant, twenty percent chance that you 're not coming home so maybe uh, maybe so that that 's what I think is partially behind here. okay, time to move on so that 's verses eight and nine, so he 's first addressed the unmarried and widows, and now he addresses the married in verse ten. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So a few comments here on 10 and 11. So he's speaking to all those who are married now, a broad category in 10. And he says, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Now this doesn't mean that uh, Paul is saying that What came from the Lord is of a higher value or more uh, authoritative than what comes from me. He's simply distinguishing here, and he will again in a few verses, between what has come down through oral teaching from Jesus and what is actually coming from Paul. Both... The written word of God of Jesus reported in the Gospels is inspired, just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as Paul's words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he's just bringing attention to that original audience in Corinth that this teaching, what is in verses 10 and 11, is what the Lord taught on about marriage. So let me read it again. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. The same thing applies. We see this, this reciprocity and this mutuality throughout this passage, and we see it here. So this is, uh, so this is tough, verses 10 and 11. Uh, it's very clear here. There's no ambiguity what it's saying. It's saying you shouldn't be divorced if you are. Your options are to remarry or to remain single. So we might think, well, they didn't have uh, a whole lot of uh, divorce back then, and, and that uh, was not the case. In the Roman world of the first century, divorce was undertaken both frequently and often for selfish, for trivial reasons. So divorce was very common in the first century in Corinth just as it is today. So he's speaking into a context. Life expectancy is a lot shorter, but as far as the Commonplaceness of divorce—it's a similar setting. I, I want verses ten and eleven to to land on all of us. It, we we have clear teaching here, and the Lord wants us to obey uh, His word. Some people uh, marriages get so difficult, and they get so painful and of course there are times for separation and i'm not intending this sermon to be a comprehensive sermon this is a sermon coming out of 1st corinthians 7 so we don't have time to get into every passage about marriage and divorce today but we want verses 10 and 11 to uh, sit on us to hit us to impress upon us what these uh, what this what paul and what the word of god is teaching here in verses 10 11 and to rely upon the holy spirit to bring Uh, healing and redemption to our marriages i want to share a story with you one of my favorite weddings that i've ever uh, officiated in fact i was thinking about this guy today i was like it would have been cool that to have him here today i wish i I wish i would have thought about this but uh, this is many years ago there's a knock on my door it's about dinner time and I, i go and answer the door and the door is a man that I've known for many years who has been divorced from his wife for, for probably a year or two. And throughout that time, there were numerous men uh, in his church and in other churches. He actually attended a different uh, church. His kids attended the school that, that was at our church, a different congregation than this one. And he, and he knocks on my door. It's about dinner time. And he says, uh, uh, and I notice that his ex-wife and they had like five or six kids or something like this, are in the van outside. And there's only one car outside, not two cars. When ex-husbands and wives come to the pastor's house, you don't usually expect them to come in one car. So he comes to the door, knocks on the door. I see the van out there with the wife and kids, and he says, Mike, uh, can you marry us? And I'm like, now? He's like, yeah, right now. And I'm like, well, we're about to eat dinner. <laughs> and did you get a marriage license? Uh, no, I didn't get a marriage license, but the Lord has been working on us. And uh, we need to get married again. And I was like, well, you need to go and get that marriage license. And so, I don't know, it was a day or two later, he comes. Uh, they, they come to the church in the van, ex-husband, ex-wife. We lock the doors. The secretary gets in the uh, car with me, and we, we drive down to Coloma. We walk out on this bridge uh, going over the river there. I'll never forget it because I've never been doing vows before. And then we all had to go to the railing and lean over because a car came, <laughs> came by. So we're like, do you? And, and it had, had, had to lean over. But it wasn't the car that was so special. Here was a couple that felt like we can't do this anymore. We're done. Uh, we're, 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 we're not listening to verses uh, 10 and 11. And they went through with the divorce. And the Lord did a work and brought this couple and brought this family back together. It is a beautiful, beautiful um, story and, and one that I'm so thankful to have been a part of. I share it. Again, we're going to get to the part two. I'm sharing this. For those of you that haven't experienced that, I'm, not sh- I, I'm absolutely not sharing this to make you feel miserable. Okay. I'm sharing this because this is what the Word of God calls us to, so that our marriages display the gospel of Jesus. So hang in there until we get to part two. So we've looked at eight and nine, we looked at ten and eleven. Not a lot of controversy yet as far as interpretation, but we're about to get there. So this next section is uh, twelve through sixteen. So we've looked at the married and uh, unmarried and widows, and and to the married, and now uh, and now we're looking. At, uh, to the believer who's married to an unbeliever. All of verses 12 through 16, it's kind of a subcategory of verses 10 and 11. So 10 and 11 is broad, and then 12 through 16, uh, what we're about to look at here is a believer married to an unbeliever. So verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. So again, it's this, Paul's distinguishing. This isn't teaching that Jesus taught on. Now, this is teaching uh, from me as equally inspired by the Holy Spirit as Jesus' teaching. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with him, she must not divorce him. So let's pause here for a second. So this is a a really, as the church is new and, and Jesus has recently raised, uh, been raised from the dead and the church is getting going. You could see where, if you remember all the way back to chapter 7, verse 1, they have written to Paul asking for some help about how to live. And so he's responding, all of this chapter, he's responding to their request for help about how we should live. And you could see some of them in this scenario where uh, they, weren't, they didn't know the Lord and, and one of the, the husband or the wife comes to know the Lord and the other one doesn't. What, what do we do, Paul? This this doesn't seem to work very well. Uh, what what should we do? And he's and he's clear on uh, what to do in verses twelve through thirteen that the believer should not divorce or 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 separate. And so uh, one one church in their uh, policy statement uh, has described this as a mixed marriage when you have a believer and an unbeliever. Though the mixed marriage may end in divorce, the believing spouse is not given permission to initiate divorce. That may happen. But he's saying in, in verses 12 and 13, uh, no, uh, don't, uh, uh, don't go that route. You need to stay married. So let's look at verse 14. I love verse 14. This is a difficult verse, and the, all the rest of this is controversial. This whole thing is controversial, right? But uh, let me read verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So what do we do with this verse? So here's how I think we we should work through this verse. Uh, If you just read this verse on its surface, you would think that the unbelieving spouse and the children are saved. They're sanctified. They're made holy. So if you just read that verse, you might think that. But of course, we shouldn't think that because the Bible is very clear that we're only saved by repenting and believing in Jesus, that we're saved by grace by, uh, through faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. Our faith produces works which evidence that our faith is genuine. And the gospel, the Bible is so clear on this in so many places, in Ephesians 2 and in Galatians. So that can't mean what verse 14, uh, verse 14 can't mean that that the unbelieving husband is saved, that the children are saved. They have to, be born again by the Holy Spirit or renewed or converted or however, whatever language you want to use. They have to come to faith on their own. So what uh, So what does this verse mean? Let's look at it again carefully. I want this to land especially on those of you, and I know there's many in our congregation who have unbelieving spouses, and this is difficult to live in this context. It's difficult to live in that home. And so I think verse 14 is precisely for that scenario. Verse 14 is to say, you can do this. You can do this. Uh, th- that, that the Lord is protecting your home because of your faith is what verse 14 is saying. One commentator puts it this way, the lifestyle of the Christian partner cannot but affect the ethos and to some extent the values and lifestyle of the home, whether this be the husband or the wife. The spouse's example, the believing spouse, his or her witness, prayer, and living out of the gospel makes the spouse and the children, in this sense, holy. The Lord is over that home. The Lord will protect you. Um, stay. Uh, you don't have uh, the freedom uh, to uh, to leave here. This is what verse 14 uh, is saying. So let's move on uh, to the most controversial part here of this passage, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 is the most controversial and debated one and godly people disagree uh, about what it means verse 15 but the but if the unbeliever leaves so you don't have the permission to divorce but if the unbeliever leaves let him do so a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances god has called us to live in peace so the interpretive issue here is what does not bound mean and i want to suggest that it does not mean what many suggest it means, which means that this, if the unbelieving spouse deserts the believing spouse, that the believing spouse is free to remarry. I, I want to say that that is not what verse 15 is saying. And I want to give you some reasons for that. And the first one is really verse 16. Look at verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So in the very next verse, Paul is assuming that the believing husband or the believing wife of this mixed marriage is remaining in a place of prayer and identifying and describing that person as your husband or your wife. So so when it says in verse 15, a believing man or woman is not bound, what this is meaning is that the believing man or woman is not Abound, or enslaved, or required to move with, or to act as though, or to pursue this unbeliever who leaves. Uh, If you were the man who is believing, and your unbelieving wife leaves, that you that you need to kind of pursue her and and be after her and force her. No, you you let her go. You let her go. That's what this uh, means. The King James Version translates it this way but if the unbelieving depart let him depart a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases i know i'm getting a little technical here i hope i don't i don't lose you but the verb here in verse 15 that the niv translates not bound is the verb doulao and you may be familiar with the noun form of that verb doulos that paul uses at the beginning of almost every one of his letters he describes himself as a servant a bond servant Or a slave of Christ. This is how he describes himself at the beginning of almost every one of his letters. And our translators don't translate it slave because the word slave in in American English has so much baggage tied to white supremacy and racism that isn't present in the first century with this word that they translate it bondservant or servant or something like this. This is the same word just in the verb form dulao used here. A believing man or woman is not enslaved in this circumstance. Let the person uh, go. Uh, let let him let him do so. Uh, y- you need to live in peace. So, just a couple other comments, and then we're going to move to verse uh, to the second part of this sermon. This is again talking about verse fifteen. Uh, one commentator, D. A. Carson, uh, writes this. He says it is often suggested. That this, verse 15, allows a deserted Christian spouse to remarry since the Christian is not bound to the marriage that has been dissolved. This interpretation is not plausible, number one, because in verse 11, Paul prohibits remarriage in cases where divorce has taken place. So we've just gone over that in verse 11. So this is a subcategory of what he said in verses 11 and 12. And so he's just prohibited that. He's giving additional reasons. Number two, the Greek verb does not mean bound. It means enslaved or under bondage. Number three, the thrust of the context is maintaining marriage. All throughout this chapter, the, con- the thrust is maintaining marriage. And finally, uh, number four, Paul speaks of freedom for a new marriage only in cases when the spouse has died. This is in verse 39. Let's go ahead and just jump there briefly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39. Here is where we have an explicit reference to remarriage. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives But if her husband dies, she is free to remarry anyone she she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. Okay, I made it through that. Okay, can I just share my heart with you? This is not the most fun section of Scripture to preach, right? And I I mean, I'm just sharing my heart. I wish I had a better attitude uh, about it. Uh, But I'm just sharing, I was like in a fight yesterday with myself and kind of down and and, um, was feeling under spiritual attack. And yet our responsibility is to preach the word of God as it was given to us. And so that's that's what Pastor Adam does, that is what I do, and that's what we pray that in this pulpit would happen um, forever, whoever is here. So now I want to move to part two, okay? So... Um, So we've looked at these sections, and and so I'm having a second part of my sermon here, looking back now to those who have been divorced, to those who have been remarried, and I'm just assuming, it's too complex to go into everything today, but I'm just assuming right now, in in the way that I'm going to be speaking, I'm going to give you a case scenario in in just a moment, for those who have been divorced and remarried in a way that is contrary to Scripture, okay? And I want to give you a, a, a case scenario that I hope is, is helpful. Um, let's, uh, let's imagine a, a husband and wife uh, who both know and love the Lord. A husband and wife who know the Bible, who know the gospel, that we might describe as mature Christians. And their marriage just goes down the tubes. It is just awful. It is just unbearable. It gets to a point where they don't really like each other anymore. They're living together, mostly for the sake of the children that are in their home. The husband decides, contrary to Scripture, to begin to develop a relationship, an emotional relationship, and he has feelings and desires for another woman. Guys in the church and brothers who love him kind of see what's going on here, and they come around him, and they rally to him, and all of a sudden, he cuts all of them off. And he decides to go in the direction of divorce and remarrying this woman, who he sees as a much better prospect to be a wife than the wife that I currently have. Let's imagine this scenario. So he goes through with this uh, divorce. He marries this other woman. And, uh, And they're pretty happy for a while. And then as the years tick by, it's amazing how that marriage all of a sudden now looks a lot like the first marriage. And the man sees the truth of God's word. He sees that he should not have done what he did back with wife number one. He repents before the Lord of this. Now, let's assume that man comes to our fellowship with wife number two. That man should be welcomed and loved into our fellowship and encouraged to love his wife that he has now in the way that he should have loved his first wife, the way that 1 Corinthians 7 describes things and, and other passages in the New Testament. And it is our responsibility to affirm and love that man and that woman. And for some reason, we're, we um, in the church have become experts at, at elevating certain sins and making people feel terrible. And, and we ought not to do that. And that's why I have part two in this sermon today. So, um, so I have a, a few more things to say. I just want to be really clear. Uh, what, what this man should be able to say, along with all of us, this man in this case scenario I just put forward, he, he should be able to say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but all of it is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's the spirit with which no matter what dark sins you or I have in our past that we should live because Jesus died for them. Amen? He died for the sin of divorce in that scenario I just described. And in the sin of remarriage that I just described. And that sin is forgivable just like every other sin that you and I commit. So again, for those of you that have consciences, well, I'm just not sure, am I really going to be forgiven? I want to hit this briefly, okay? To give us a robust theology of forgiveness here. I want to hit this. This is what we should be underlining. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy, blasphemy, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Everyone. Is there an exception? There is. So let's look at it and get it out of the way. Okay, here's the one exception. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or this one sin that is not forgiven? Well, it has nothing to do with marriage or divorce or sexual sin or or anything like this. So briefly, let's look at at the verses right above this, where we actually have a description, I believe, of this sin taking place. The unpardonable sin. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So this is our example of what the unpardonable sin is or what the unforgivable sin is or what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And what it is is when you understand the Scriptures and you understand the Gospel and you understand that Jesus is the Messiah and you witness Jesus the Messiah casting demons out of someone that is demon-possessed, when you witness Jesus the Messiah healing the sick and raising the dead and you see these supernatural things taking place before your eyes, when you see that and you, and you say, yes, I see that is happening and that is by the power of Satan. That is the only unpardonable sin. That is good news. I've never met anybody who's done that. I've never met anybody who's done that. So this is good news. So I... I I hope this, this part two is helpful and not with a spirit of, 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 of second-class citizen, of, of getting in the back of bus for those who are divorced and remarried, uh, those who have been divorced and remarried in a way that's contrary to Scripture. Uh, J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, There's such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven, but those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. And I would say that includes all of us here today. We'll close with this verse. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. What is this verse saying? It is saying that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have dark things in our past. And one of the ways—the only way we get forgiven—is for, by faith in Jesus. But one of the ways that we get relief from our sins in the past is by us as a church family loving one another so much that those things in our past—they kind of go away from our hearts to a degree. They—they—they they, they, they begin to evaporate quickly because oh, you love me, even though I yes, yes. We love one another. We love one another. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how many husbands or wives you have had in the past, Jesus died for that sin. And you are declared righteous by faith. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You, for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. I pray for every marriage here, every future marriage again. I pray that they would display the kind of love, the indestructible love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. Lord, we pray that that people at work and people that we know who don't know the Lord would see our marriages and see husbands serving and loving their wives, putting aprons on. See wives loving and praying for their husbands and and loving them and serving them. And Lord, we pray that they would come to know you because of our love for one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. and